used to be with the Fellowship of Evangelical Bible Churches Commission on Education. And he said, he said that he's kind of retired from that now, but um, I'm sure he can explain uh, to us uh, a lot more about that. But at this time, we have the great pleasure of having Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Dean. Just a pleasure to be with you this morning. And we had just a beautiful drive up Omaha. It was 78 when we left, and it got down to about 71 by the time we got here. So that's got to be good news. <laughs> but it's, uh, I've, I've been a pastor for 23 years, and it's mostly been in rural churches and uh, small town churches. So I always enjoy going to a, a, a church like this and seeing how the Lord is uh, working in, in the small towns of uh, of our whole nation. Uh, I pastor in Ohio and uh, in Upper Sandusky, Upper Sandusky, Ohio, in Millbank, South Dakota, and down near Dodge City, Kansas. And uh, then I was administrator of the Fellowship of Evangelical Bible Churches for about 15 years, then I retired. So now I have a hobby job, and I go to various businesses and uh, uh, truck terminals and things, to inspect damaged freight. So I've been up here a couple of times. I've been to, uh, is it Oakland or Oakdale down here? I was down there one time. But uh, yeah, you've heard, met my wife Faith already, or you know who she is, point her out. We have uh, four married children, and they've been very prolific. We have 24 grandchildren, and uh, I, I can't even keep track of the great-grandchildren now, but we're, we're getting close to six, I think, on, on great-grandchildren. But uh, that's, that's been fun, too. And most of them live around uh, within 40 minutes of our house in Omaha. But uh, we have one younger son who lives out in California, and he's right in the path of the hurricane right now. Um, I talked to him last night. They thought they were going to get the heavy rains there. And uh, the problem out in California is they have so many forest fires, too. And then uh, it burns everything off. Then when it rains, all the mud and everything just washes off the, off the hills. And uh, so they're by near Palmdale. They're just on the northern side. There's a little mountain range right above L.A., and they're just on the other side of, of that. But uh, so we're, we're kind of concerned about that as well. Uh, do any of you know Kurt Busnitz? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, Kurt was, works with RHMA, so I thought maybe he'd been here to the church or something. You'd know him, but um, that's Faith's nephew. So we follow their ministry. They've been up near Valentine, Nebraska, and now they've moved to Illinois. And I understand last week, Shannon Arduzer was here. Is that right? Yeah. Well, we've known Shannon for a long time. He went to school. He went to Grace College of the Bible with our children. And so he's the same age as our, most of our children. And uh, he was youth pastor for one summer down in Mead, Kansas at our church. So we've known him for a long time and, and uh, followed his work. I've only been to the camp once or twice, but our granddaughter worked there this summer at the camp, and uh, she was at our house a couple of weeks ago, and I told her I was coming up here to preach, and she said, oh, Peter Sample, I had, I had lunch with him last week and <laughs> visited with him, so it's a, it's a small world. Now, everyone loves a good story. And I think most of us really like Bible stories. I don't know about the younger families now, but our family, uh, with our kids, we grew up with, with Bible story books, Moody Bible story book, and, and different other ones. 
And if you're in Sunday school, you're learning the Bible stories. But large sections of the Old Testament are called narratives, or they're actually stories. They're not fiction stories, they're true stories, but they're told in story fashion. But unfortunately, Bible stories are often just pulled out of their context, and uh, they're drawn from a larger narrative. And so we may hear the story a dozen times, but we never actually learn why God put that story in the Bible, or how it's connected to the other stories, and uh, uh, why God included that in his word. Well, 1 Kings 17 is a mine for for Bible stories. You may want to turn there. We'll stay in that chapter this morning. But uh, you may remember the Bible story about how God used ravens to feed a prophet. Or there's a story of the young widow who was just about to starve to death before a, a prophet stepped in to announce that God would supply flour and oil for her. And who can forget the story about the little boy who died and God gave his life back again? All of these are exciting stories. They're all in 1 Kings chapter 17. But I want us to see that those stories are connected and to see how the important lessons those stories have for Israel and for us. Uh, after Solomon's reign, you know, David reigned, and then Solomon was his son. He was the next king over, over Israel. And then after him, the kingdom just split. And there were, the northern kingdom kept that name kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom took on the name kingdom of Judah. And Israel, the northern kingdom, had 19 kings. And they could be classified as, as bad, very bad, or extremely bad. All of them were bad. You see, God wanted his people to come down to Israel and worship together there and uh, have their Bible conferences and things in Israel several times a year. But the, when the kingdom split, the king of the northern kingdom said, well, let's just keep everybody home here. You know, we don't want to lose uh, the economy of people going down for be tourists down in Jerusalem. So let's just build some worship centers here. So King Jeroboam built a worship center at the southern end of his kingdom, uh, down at Bethel. And then he built one up at Dan at the northern end of his kingdom. And they sort of worshiped God at those kingdoms, even though they had golden calves set up. They kept saying, well, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. You know, we can worship these. We're kind of worshiping the true God while we do this, and so on. Well, that list of kings begins in 1 Kings chapter 12. And uh, Jeroboam, as I said, was the first bad king, and he built those worship centers and all. But then the sixth king down the line was Omri. And uh, Omri was very bad. You'd have to classify him as as very bad, because there's there's some that are even worse than him. In fact, 1 Kings 16, 25 tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. So he stands out from the pack of being the evilest guy around. Well, Omri encouraged the people of Israel to worship idols, those those golden calves especially. Uh, And he built a new capital of Israel to keep people in his kingdom as well. He built the capital of Samaria, a beautiful big city that would rival Jerusalem and uh, hopefully make make, uh, Samaria a destination uh, place for other people. Well, 
When Omri died, his son Ahab took over. And if you know your Bible stories, you know that Ahab was extremely bad. Ahab married Jezebel, who was a very wicked and pagan uh, lady. And between the two of them, they didn't just stick to the golden calves, but they wanted to throw out the whole religion of Israel and replace it with worship of Baal and Asherah. And so that, that was their quite claim to fame. Now, one day a prophet had a meeting with Ahab, and his message is in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1. First, I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither, neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. I don't know how farming is around here. I think you mainly rely on rain. But in Israel and uh, other places around the Mideast, dew is a very important factor for them too to, to get their crops going. In fact, uh, there were some people who would plant a, a wheat, a little, one little wheat plant, and then they pile pebbles around it. And when the dew came in the morning, the water would run off of that and run down to the ground and water their little wheat plant. And so it took a lot of work. They probably had a lot of kids out there, you know, putting a little gravel around their, their plants. But they were able to grow things when you had hardly any rain at all, just, just from the dew. And uh, so, so that's probably a little bit different uh, farming than what, what we have. But drought was coming to Israel, and they would have no dew, no rain, because they had turned away from God. They had broken the covenant with God. Exodus 20 and uh, uh, Deuteronomy 5 and 6 talk about that covenant. There are many other passages of the Bible too, Old Testament. But Deuteronomy 6, 13 says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Now this area, in fact most of Nebraska, is in a drought condition right now. Or you might be a little bit out of it, I don't know. Further, further east, I know they're uh, really in drought. But uh, we can't say with confidence that you people are any worse sinners than anybody else in the United States. You know... It, you can't correlate drought to a person's spiritual condition in this church age. God, Jesus said that God in his grace and mercy sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It seems to be the same way with drought. When drought comes, it affects believers, godly people, as well as, as, as sinners. In fact, even this prophet himself suffered because of the drought. So drought came to Israel because they had broken their covenant with God by worshiping idols. And the prophet who predicted that drought was Elijah. Now he's introduced in, in chapter 17, verse 1, but it's not like he just gave one message and went on sabbatical then. Uh, I, was, I thought about this passage, and then all at once I realized, hey, this kind of correlates to what's happening here. You know, Elijah went on sabbatical. So I thought maybe it'd be a good passage to use today. But uh, 
Elijah didn't just preach one message and then take a sabbatical. He had been ministering for many years before this, and we don't have a lot, we don't have record of that, a lot of record. But we see in the succeeding chapter, in the following chapter, I should say, that there were many prophets, there were hundreds of prophets throughout Israel, and probably Elijah was the one who had trained those prophets, uh, especially when you come into Elijah, Elisha, Elisha, a little bit further on in 2 Kings, you read things about the sons of the prophets. And the sons of the prophets were like Bible schools for the prophets. So there were several hundred prophets scattered around, and wicked Jezebel killed many of those prophets. But there was one person who was actually in the government, and he hid a hundred prophets. He was a believer. He hid a hundred prophets in Israel, and then he managed to feed them from his resources uh, from the government. Well, Elijah has probably been working on a regular circuit for several years, going from, from town to town and preaching the word of God, even, even though the, the government and the, the nation as a whole of Israel was uh, not following God. Later in 1 Kings 19, uh, God tells Elisha, or Elijah, I mean, God tells Elijah that 7,000 people in Israel had not bowed the knee to Baal or kissed Baal. And that was probably a, a result of Elijah's previous work in the years before. But Elijah gave his message about the drought to Ahab, and immediately Elijah took a sabbatical. He would not speak to Ahab again for three years. He would not have any public ministry for three years. God told Elijah to go and hide by the brook uh, Cherith, a small stream in Gilead, near where Elijah had grown up. As that tells us that Elijah came from a farming community. Gilead was a breadbasket of, of Israel. And so Elijah knew the, the problems that drought could bring. Look at verses 2 and 3. Chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Now, let me point out the unique structure of this chapter. If you read chapters, you know, 14, 15, 16, and then 18, 19, 20, this chapter stands out as very unique. In fact, it's, it's unique in almost all the chapters of the Bible because it has six sets of parallel statements. It has a set where God says something and then the other part of the parallel is where that comes true. And so the first set is verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 5, he did according to the word of the Lord. The second set, you shall drink from the brook, God said. And verse 6 says, and he drank from the brook. So we're going to be watching for those six sets of parallel statements. And there's a reason for that structure. Elijah has made a fantastic prediction to Ahab. No rain will fall, no dew will form for several years. In fact, it's not going to rain until I say so. Now, God's reputation is behind this. Remember, verse 1 said, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. And so Elijah was not just making a prediction off the cuff. He was giving God's word, and God's reputation was behind this judgment. So all at once, the theme of this chapter is not just a few good Bible stories. But the theme of this chapter is, can I trust God? Can I trust what God says? Now, each set of parallel statements argues for God's truthfulness. 
And throughout this chapter, God reveals himself in various ways. First, God reveals himself as the God who provides, verses 4 to 8. So when God sent Elijah on his sabbatical, there was no time to plan or to pack. Elijah had to just get out of town before Jezebel caught him and killed him. So when God told him to leave, God also promised to provide for him. How? Through some Samaritan ravens. Verse 4, I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And when Elisha obeyed, God kept his promise. Verse 5, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that's east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now ravens are not cooperative birds. We speak of a herd of cattle, or a flock of sheep, or a gaggle of geese, but the collective nouns for ravens are things like a rave of ravens, or an unkindness of ravens, or a conspiracy of ravens. You can look these, this up in Wikipedia or in your dictionary under collective nouns, and there's, there's quite a few, and they're all bad for, for ravens. Uh, you may be more familiar with crows than with ravens, but ravens and crows have the same behavioral characteristics. Ravens are just a little bit bigger and a little bit badder than crows are. And uh, I, I don't know, do you ever see ravens here? I know we go to Colorado and we get to see ravens, but we never, never see them this side of the line, it seems. So I don't know if there's any in Nebraska or not. But, uh, but look, under God's command, these ravens cooperated. They stayed on schedule. They showed kindness to Elijah. Wow, maybe we should put God in charge of our schools. Just think how that would turn out. Well, God promised to send Elijah two meals a day, and God commanded the ravens, and unlike Israel, the ravens obeyed. Where do you think the ravens found food during this famine? It's been going on for some time already, many months. Well, usually the rich people always seem to have food when there is a famine. And I suspect that, ironically, in God's humor, the ravens picked up their meals at Ahab's palace kitchen every day. <laughs> this went on for many months. And then as the effects of the long-term drought became more severe, the brook Cherith itself, a spring-fed brook, dried up. God had a new plan for Elijah. This time, God's provision was through a Sidonian widow. Verses 7 to 9. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. Zarephath was a fairly good-sized city on the coast, the Mediterranean coast of, of, the, of Israel. Uh, it's in modern Lebanon today. So it was a, the ancient country was called Sidon. And this was actually about halfway between Tyre at the bottom and, and Sidon up north. So Elijah had to travel, Elijah, here's the Sea of Galilee. Elijah had to travel north of the Sea of Galilee and then across and north on northwest to uh, get to Zarephath. Now you can probably think of several people in the Bible who 
started out to a distant city. And when they arrived at that city, they, they, the first person they met was exactly the person they wanted to meet. Uh, you remember Abraham's servant was looking for a wife for Isaac and went many, many miles to the north and ran into Rebekah. Uh, you remember that Jacob went up almost the same path. He met Rachel. The spies met Rahab in Jericho. Jesus met Zacchaeus. All people that God had, had planned for them to meet. Well, that's what happened to Elijah, too. He approached the city gate of Zarephath and saw a lady picking up sticks. And Elijah could probably tell that she was a widow by the way she was dressed, the style of dress she wore. So Elijah's in a different country. He, he's in a different culture, a different language there, probably Aramaic. His clothing looks quite strange. We read later about what he wore. But Elijah asked this woman for a cup of water. And without hesitating, she turned and started to go back into the city to get him a, a drink. But Elijah called after her, please bring me a little piece of bread as well. And then the lady stopped. She turned. She looked at Elijah and she told him her sad story. Verse 12, she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. The drought that Elijah had predicted was affecting even the nations around Israel. And the irony of this is that Jezebel came from this very area that Elijah is in now. The gods that Jezebel put so much faith in were helpless against the God of Israel. Baal was the weather god. Uh, he was the god that these people trusted to provide rain in the fall and rain in the spring for their, for their crops, for the small grains. But now Baal couldn't send rain. And so the widow expects to die along with her son. Was she thinking about suicide? Was she expecting a long death by starvation? Slow death by starvation? But the fascinating thing is that she recognized Elijah as an Israelite and she knew who his God was. Here in this pagan city, a city dedicated to Baal was a lady who knew something about Yahweh, the living God. Now, a similar thing happened to Jesus. He was traveling in the same area when a Canaanite woman came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Matthew 15. But back to Elijah and the widow. Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour will not be spent, and the jug of oil will not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Did this woman trust God's word? She could have just walked back home. Elijah was really giving her an out so she could kind of politely ignore him. Uh, she could have just gone to her home and stayed there. But obviously, she had some level of trust 
in God's word and in Elijah. So she brought a snack out to him. Somehow God was working in her heart. Remember, God had told Elijah, I have commanded a widow to feed you. So verse 15 says, she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So this is the fourth parallel in the chapter, the jug and the jar, verses 14 and 16. So the woman baked her bread, and then she took the cake and water and walked back out through the city gate again and gave that to Elijah. Now it's not recorded here, but I suspect that her next words were, uh, you know, there's an empty room on the roof of my house. Uh, you're welcome to stay there if you want to. Because Elijah ended up going and staying with that lady. So we've seen that God provides, but don't miss that God rewards. Verse 15 says that she and he, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. What, what's this household business? I know of the widow and her little son and Elijah, but usually we think of a household as being many more than that. Perhaps this woman had a servant girl, or, or maybe she had some older relatives that had moved in with her once her, uh, her supplies became stable, her food was stable. Later, she's called a mistress of the house, also implying that there was a group larger than three living at this house. But God rewarded her and her household for her hospitality to Elijah by keeping her pantry full. I wonder if Jesus is even thinking about this particular scene when he said that the one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's a, a, a reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Matthew 10, 40 to 42. God rewarded this widow. His word is true. Now all this provision, all this reward stands in such a sharp contrast to what happens next. In verse 17, we meet the God who kills. Verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. To this woman, Elijah was the face of God. She's blaming God for taking the life of her son. And Elijah agrees with her. A little further on in verse 20, it says, Elijah cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And you know what? God himself accepts blame for death. Deuteronomy 32, 29, God says, See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal. 
and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Number 16 tells the story of Korah and uh, some of Korah's uh, co-conspirators who, who conspired against Moses. And do you remember what happened at that time? God opened the earth and whole families, the fathers, mothers, children, everybody fell into the ground, were killed. God killed them. In the chapters following this, in chapters uh, uh, 18, 19, 20, we can see, read how God took Ahab's life and Jezebel's life. You know, several situations when I was a pastor, a child or grandchild died and God got the blame. But what else happened is that parents or grandparents embittered, became embittered against God in their grief. Also, just as in this case, many parents are weighed down by guilt when a child dies. The widow cried out, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance. Counselors tell us that when parents lose a child, the marriage often dissolves within a year. Issues of guilt, whether real or imagined, destroy their relationship. And the very crisis that should be pulling husband and wife together tear them apart. With God's grace, that doesn't have to happen. A psalm I've used at several funerals for children or, or young people is Psalm 103. And many of you can probably quote some of that with me even. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. And then verse 10 he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. David, who wrote that psalm, had buried three sons. He had enormous guilt. The deaths of his sons were not good situations. He had guilt about it, but he came to accept God's forgiveness and grace. Well, back to Zarephath. Elijah took that little boy from his mother from his mother's arms, carried him up to his room on the roof of the building, laid the body on his bed. I'm sure that Elijah had come to love that little boy too in his months that he'd spent at the widow's house. And first, Elijah scolded God, as I read before. Verse 20, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? But next, Elijah pleaded for the life of this little boy. Verse 21, then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. I want to make something clear. <clears throat> there's, not, there's no magic in this. There's no medicine in this. There's no spell in Elijah's actions. Elijah has never seen someone come back to life again. He has no idea what he should be doing, if anything. He knows of nothing he can do. This is in God's hands. So are you ready for the fifth parallel statement? The set's completed in verse 22, when we meet the God who makes alive. Elijah has prayed, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. God responded, verse 22, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. 
Now the sixth parallel is a little bit different because we have an up and a down in it. You know, it's a little bit different than the other parallels. But verse 19 says, he took him from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber. Verse 23 gives just sort of the opposite. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber of the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. What joy and thankfulness there were in that house, in that household, maybe I should say. All along through this chapter, we've been seeing something about God that this woman formally acknowledges in verse 24. She has met the God who speaks truth. In verse 24, the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She's seen Elijah's character. She's heard his word. She's felt his compassion. Now she affirms that he is a man of God. Elijah had told her earlier at the beginning, if you remember, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. This widow hasn't seen the rain yet, but she knows God's promise is true. The rain is coming. We need to recognize that God's word is true. There are so many other voices calling for us today, saying, I'm true, and I'm true, and I have the right way, and I have the right way, and this book is the right answer to your problems, and this book is the right answer. We need to focus on God's word again and realize that God's word is truth. Everything God promises will happen. And God has given us many promises in his word. Uh, Peter calls these precious promises in 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, let me just mention a couple of them this morning. We have an advocate with the Father. That's a wonderful promise. 1 John 2.1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We have a promise of a new home. John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many... We have the promise of a new body. I understand you've been studying 1 Corinthians 15 and studying resurrection. We have an inheritance laid away for us already in heaven that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. We look forward to a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3.13. So we can trust God's word. And you know, it's not just the promises we can trust, but we can also trust God's details about creation from his word. We can trust God's commands. We can trust God's instructions, like the book of Proverbs, for instance, or the book of uh, Ephesians and Colossians, where they tell us what, how to live. We can trust the history we find in Scripture, like 1 Kings. We can trust the information we find in Scripture. You're, we're, we can be informed about Satan's schemes, Paul says. Well, let's go back to promises. Which of God's promises speaks to you this morning? 
Keep in mind that God makes different promises for us who live after Christ in the church age than for Israel. The New Testament promises are for the church. Many Old Testament promises were for Israel, for specific people. God is not going to feed us lunch with ravens today. Well, he might, but there's no promise to that effect. So understand the context of promises. But which of God's promises speaks to you this morning? Is there a promise of forgiveness? A promise of hope? A promise of provision for your needs? Or even for your health? Is there a promise of resurrection that you're looking forward to today? How about new world leadership? That's a promise I like. It's a political world today. And yet the Bible says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. We can trust God's word. Don't neglect the word of God. Don't turn away from the promises that God gives us. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chapter and for just the demonstration that you can be trusted. Even in that world that Ahab and Jezebel were trying to turn people away from trusting you, there was this one widow who did trust you and who did understand that you are the God of truth. We pray that we can join her, that we can also affirm that you are the God of truth and we want to follow you with our lives. We just pray for Pastor Sample and his family and uh, just give him some renewal and refreshment even as he studies and, and works with this and uh, bring him back to an effective ministry here this fall too. We just pray for the congregation here and for the uh, leadership as they're without a pastor. And we pray that you'll just uh, help them to, to pitch in and, and uh, uh, help out in many ways that maybe they haven't done before. And just give them success in that and just give them joy in, in their work and, and ministry here. We just pray for the uh, programs to be starting up soon too with the youth and, and children here at the church. Pray that they can be effective too and just transmitting your, your truth and in helping to uh, give these young people a solid foundation of knowing that your word is true and they can rely on what you say. Just to be with each one of us throughout this week. We have uh, uh, many challenges ahead with, with the heat in the next few days. We have uh, possibly challenges with health, with our jobs, with other things. And we just pray that uh, you would work through us and that what we do would be for your glory. So just uh, watch over each person that's here today and help them to sense your compassion and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Paul.